0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Tornberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm, and this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global Venture Stories. I'm here today with two very special guests, Chris McCann and Alfred Schwang of Race Capital chris alfred welcome to the show
1: thanks, thanks for having us eric. us eric
0: awesome but by way of introduction why don't we start with what is the thesis behind uh, Ra- race capital what is sort of the, the story behind race capital why this why don't you give us a bit of background
2: well i uh, this is alfred i'll give it a try so actually um uh the genesis of race capital was actually from a different fund so uh chris uh and edith young and also uh, phil chan they had uh, started, just barely started, a new fund that was uh, focusing in um, crypto technology and that kind of thing. And uh, I, uh, I've i been a very good friend with Phil forever. You know, he and I have done a bunch of uh, angel deals together. And through introduction, I met um, Chris first, and I met Edith, and we really hit it off. Um, so at some point after, I think, several months of uh, meeting on and off, I said to them, I said, well, um, I, I, I don't think... Um, my role as an LP makes a whole lot of sense, but I've been thinking about um, going into investing full-time from being an angel investor for a very long period of time. it's said, so, you know, just finally the time I think I wanted to do it. And then we kind of then evolved and basically restarted the fund, the focus on enterprise software, and also made the fund larger. So that's how, kind of how we got here.
1: Yeah. And, and then to, to answer, like, I guess more specifically about raised capital, um. Yeah, we focus on all things on the infrastructure layer cross enterprise, B2B, FinTech infrastructure, which has a lot of ties to a lot of the work um, we were doing before, all early stage. So seed fund, pre-seed, all the way up to um, Series A. And and we, we really specialize in like in these formation companies where we take a really, really technical founder solving some sort of very important problem very, very early on and help them craft the company around them, find the initial team, help attraction, branding, distribution, MVP, kind of all all that stuff. So soup the nuts, full stack, early stage investor um, across all these different uh, market sectors and B2B enterprise specifically.
0: And Chris, talk a little bit about the evolution from uh, focus on crypto to more focus on enterprise or, or more generalist focus.
1: Yeah. So as, as Alfred mentioned, uh, uh, myself, Edith and uh, Phil Chen, and I, I guess to introduce them super briefly and, and myself, too, uh, I used to work at Greylock Partners. Um, I was there for uh, almost five years, uh, mostly focusing on a lot of the emerging market sectors we were looking at. Um, and I also started and ran all the community program, which I think we intersected back in the day um, um, based on some of the product community stuff we were doing. Um, so we did uh, both different communities around all the different operational areas of a company and all the different emerging market sectors. This is actually how I sort of crossed into the, um, the whole sort of blockchain and crypto world uh, Greylock, we invested in uh, Zappa, Blockstream, and Coinbase, um, sort of all all in their earlier rounds. And then I got kind of deeply involved in a bunch of the people in the Ethereum community and kind of at, at the emerging sort of tech at large. Uh, when we we kind of all came together with Alfred, we decided to take again this much much larger, broader lens on all the stuff we were doing, based on all the backgrounds that we had before. And then to introduce super briefly, uh, Edith Young, she used to be a GP at 500 Startups. And before that, she was uh, one of the executives at Dolphin Browser. It was one of the very first uh, mobile Android browsers. Grew to 150 million installs, was uh, sold to a company listed on the NASDAQ. And then uh, um, and then Phil, Phil also has a really deep background on the AI, ML, and deep tech side. Uh, he was uh, um, one of the first creators of the very first Android phone, um, and then also created the HTC Vive. And then before this was a GP at Horizon Ventures with Li ka Xing out in Hong Kong, focused again all on the AI and ML space. So yeah, after a lot of discussions and kind of forming what race capital would become, yeah, we, we basically took all the collective backgrounds and experience and education and um, execution stuff that we've done before. And this is kind of what molded into becoming race capital.
2: So Eric, um, th- maybe as worth mentioning a little bit about how, how I came into the picture. So I um, uh, got in the industry, uh, I spent nine years at Sun, Sun Microsystems. And then uh, it was really the golden, gauge of, golden age of Sun that um, it has groomed a lot of entrepreneurs in the Valley. And then uh, after nine years of Sun, I started a company called BEA Systems uh, in '95, And BEA was a um, really, uh, at the time, the only distributed middleware company. So we first started with a TP monitor um that sold to like large telcos for billing and provisioning and then banks so we were the company that really where the mission was to go kill the mainframe and really move all the transactions into the way that we know it today which is highly distributed on a lot of server over a very wide area network and um that company was invested um only a 50 million dollar single round by walter pinkers i was a very successful company and they were able to um take out i think six and a half billion dollars in um. And return out of that single deal. And uh, BEA um, uh, had pivoted itself two or three times, each time we became just a lot larger. And the first time we did a major pivot was into e commerce, just right in the era of dot com. And then we were able to grow the company, I think, in five quarters from 100 million in revenue to just over a billion. And um, so eventually the company um, in 2008 was sold to Oracle for $8.6 billion. And uh, that's kind of my background. And I, after BEA, I started a couple. Startups, and I invested into a lot, 100 com- hundred, hundred plus companies, mostly all into. Other than a brief period of time in maybe OA in two thousand ten in some consumer company, but most of my other deals were all in enterprises. I always say I better stay with the stuff that I know something about instead of venturing into stuff that I don't know anything about. So I guess when we got together, I was telling my story and also the things that I was really more interested in. Data was one of them, and then so happened that fintech. Uh, in the digital banking uh, are very much like middleware and APIs. So those things I like, open source technology that have high adoption I like. So the three of us, the four of us, really then really hit it off and say, oh, those are all the things we love also. But um, then forget about crypto. So this is now back to a long-term, very thesis-driven, super early stage. Sometimes really, I love the formation stage of the companies, helping the founder to get going, helping them on resources, using my Rolodex to get them the first customers, that type of activity. So that's kind of how this whole thing came about.
0: Totally. So let's, um, let's talk about investing in, in the COVID era. Uh, let's talk about what, what trends you, you guys are following or, or noticing or, or what sectors you're you know, spending much more, much more time on.
2: So um, I was actually, and this is a terrible thing to say, I was actually really excited to see a crisis um, because I just look at my own track record. In April of 2000, and then in May of 2008, I've, I think within a very short period of time, I did the most amount of investments. So I thought it was just a coincidence. Then looking back, I said, well, it turns out prices create several opportunities. I think the biggest is to give tech people a chance to reset their thinking, to say, what really do we need to do? And what kind of technology does, does the world need 10 years from now? Now obviously, enterprise technology is even more, a little more complicated because it generally is embedded inside things that people don't see. So you really have to be thinking very clearly about what a vision is. So when a crisis hit, I said, well, this is going to be very big. Just look back between 2008 and 2020 before we just hit the COVID, what came about? We got social network, we got cloud, we got SaaS, we got the touch phone, we got the whole gig economy. All of that stuff, right, that we are now become indispensable, all came through during the last crisis. So we said, what is going to come around this crisis? So there are a few technology areas that we are particularly focused on. Obviously, one we talked a little bit about is FinTech, mostly focused on digital banking because we know that um, banking services are going to be em- embedded, and will be available inside every type of application, enterprise and consumer. So that's going to be a very crucial piece to figure out. So going from the way that we think of banking, that was very vertically integrated from consumer commercial all the way to the back office, a generally owned by a bank, that won't be the case in the future. In the future, it's going to be passed off. And that piece that embedded inside the application, the clientele is going to be mostly uh, developers, not what we think of end users today. One area that I've always loved and now it's even more important is data. Um, because uh, mining that data and having using data to tell us what's going on is now so popular now. So even the smallest shop and smallest restaurants uh, have their own database and looking to, through to see, to try to get insight into where the business is going to, what are the things they have to worry about. And, and, and it's almost like in the subtlety, you just listen to the news. How much people talk about is now data-driven is unbelievable, right? Everything is so data-driven now. So I think that's going to continue to be very crucial, especially now we are touching alongside with privacy is crucial, and then we're going to be looking at data where we want to look at, but we can't really see what's inside. So that's going to be a crucial area for for us. So we love that collaboration is super critical. Um, These tools like Zoom that we're now using, you're going to be recording and letting a bunch of folks listen to it is great, but it's really not designed as a uh, pandemic tool, Right. So I, I have known the company and known Eric for a long time. You know, they've done such an incredible job. Thank God there was Zoom. But it was never designed to replace all the things that we use at work and just move people to be able to work from home. So all the other things are lacking for us to be able to do our work and implementing culture and process is yet to be invented. So now but that's become plainly obvious, we're unlikely to ever go back to the office the way, like the way we were. So that's crucial for us. So these are all key areas: privacy and security, also, but in a slightly different context. Where now it's much more prevalent to the ways that we're going to use stuff. Privacy is going to be really big. Look at the whole TikTok story. So, but it's not well defined. We don't know what data we should keep. What data should be made available? It's almost the awareness is just starting. For sure, it's at the consumer level. So these four categories are our big love, you know. So. Obviously, we look at all kinds of deals. When you're doing formations, we're going to go for a lot of twists and turns and pivoting and that kind of stuff. But um, it, the, these four fields and what it will transpire and like video as a service is going to be so big 10 years from now. We're going to look back and say, oh, my God, how come we didn't have that then?
1: Yeah. And, and then uh, just to add to that, uh, I'll recover most of this, but uh, I, I tend to be also very empirical and sort of data-driven as well. So a few high-level stats is since post-COVID, post the lockdown – Uh, We've evaluated 187 companies of that, the five kind of main categories they all string across are collaboration, data infrastructure and machine learning, fintech infrastructure, open source, privacy and security. Um, So these tend to be the core buckets we focus on. And again, all from the B2B and enterprise skew, a little bit less from the consumer side. Chris, uh,
0: you wrote a blog post on, on fintech infrastructure that was a pretty good o- overview of the space. Why don't you uh, unpack some of the, the main points that you were trying to get across uh, in, in the space or where you're excited to invest in
1: Yeah, h- happy to. Um, I guess in general, like when most people typically think about fintech, they usually think about the applications that sit on top of it. So they think of the Robin Hoods, the SoFi's, the Credit Karma's, the Coinbase's of the world. But there's a whole host of underlying uh, infrastructure that enables all of these applications and all this future stuff um, to work in the first place. And a few of these uh, bigger trends, as, as Alfred is mentioning, that we really see going forward is one with kind of the FinTech 1.0 era, if you will, is you saw the unbundling of all the financial services away from the larger financial institutions. Typically, all financial services used to be provided by the, the, the major banks, a.k.a. the Wells Fargo, Chase's, City of the Worlds. These are the ones that provided all these services. Now with FinTech 1.0, you basically have all of these smaller FinTech companies picking off each one of these services one by one, whether that be SMB lending or credit scoring or mortgages, et cetera, et cetera. We think one of the biggest trends, which a lot of people have also pointed to, is this rise of embedded FinTech. We are seeing these financial features now being embedded into the underlying technology marketplaces and platforms that are out there. And you could just think about sort of the recent news and examples from Shopify and Uber and Grab and a lot of the experiments Facebook are doing. This thing is going to continue, persist, and also proliferate amongst many of the smaller players as well. And when you look in that world, the most important end customer doesn't really become the... Uh, end consumer or business anymore, the most important customer in this case really is the developer themselves. And developers, uh, historically, banks have never really serviced developers to begin with, but developers want a whole set of different things. They don't just want like access to the underlying data of these banks. What they really want is the underlying functionality. So I want to be able to embed the account creation process within my application I want to have a whole lending process be built within my own application via an API. I want this to be scalable to cover every single geography. Um, we're sort of just at like, the cusp of seeing a lot of this stuff. You're seeing some companies pop up like Synapse and Sela and Bankable and like the banking as a service side. But we foresee a whole host of underlying, again, developer-focused platforms to, to spring up around this. And there's a handful of companies that we've been working with closely, like within this market segment and sector. Let's, um, let's transition a
0: little bit to, 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 to crypto and where you're, we're excited in, in 2020 in crypto. I mean, Chris, you wrote, you wrote a post on custody, you wrote, you wrote a post on mining, you wrote a post on remittance. Maybe unpack you know, some of the, the main points from each or, or just talk about where you're, you're excited in, in crypto in 2020 right now.
1: Yeah, our biggest excitement in this space is really this crossover. And at least to me, I kind of think about it really simply. The major underlying use case still for all this stuff tends to be in the in the financial space, whether it's exchanges, derivatives, the movements of money, underlying banking services. So at least in my head, I actually see much, much more crossover between the crypto world, if you will, and the traditional financial infrastructure, if you will, just different underlying rails. And at some point in time, it hasn't necessarily happened yet, but there's going to be a a major clash, if you will, maybe a merge integration, maybe a different system. A lot of that stuff is still TBD. But when I look at the use cases on the crypto side, to me, I'm most drawn to all of these uh, underlying financial use cases. So I still go back to the the biggest, most obvious use case today is exchanges, spot exchanges and derivatives exchanges, Um, race capital. So we actually invested in um, one company in this space called FTX. Uh, we invested in pre-launch when they were uh, just starting off. Um, FTX has an incredible growth rate and growth um, spurt. They, they've they've basically now become the dominant uh, derivatives exchange in the space. They they do well north of billions of dollars of trading volume every every single day. Um, Sam Sam Bankman, who's the main founder, he was a former uh, trader at Jane Street, and him and his team they've just they've really crafted a dominant position for them in the space. So we like things like this that are much more tangible, real, you can point to sort of real flow of value and money movement in there. Like I I tended to be a lot less excited about sort of of the more ethereal, decentralized applications or um, NFTs or any of this stuff, because a lot of them are really cool conceptually, but you just never really saw traction with a lot of this stuff. I still think it's around a lot of these core financial services, which, again, cross over a lot more easily to a lot of things in the traditional fintech space.
0: Totally. I want to transition to sort of what the you know, public market look like, especially in terms of sort of IPO and SPACs. But maybe first, just we expected valuations to be to be significantly lower than they are. What's happening there and how should investors uh, think about that? And, and what do you expect to, to maybe occur there in the next uh, six or 12 months?
2: Eric actually, this is actually not all too surprising. you know I think you look at a few factors. one, this pandemic came, and we really didn 't have enough knowledge about what um, it's going to entail. No one would have known that it 's going to manifest itself into the situation that we 're in for one number two is we really still have a very healthy financial market. I think our banking system were well tested, so we didn 't have a lot of um Crazy mortgage products that they were selling since the 2008 financial crisis, so now if you're left with as an investors that you know initially, I think we were reacted very poorly, obviously we saw the big dip back in March, and then quickly we said, where do we put our money now interest rate is zero, so obviously you can't leave your capital sitting around because that's a negative cost, and most of the other places sectors in the world are actually all very fluid at this point, but in retail, obviously, uh, in hospitality, in transportation, right? Because people really can't move around. And we honestly don't know when we're ever gonna be able to move back to a normal state for all of those kind of things. There's one sector I think is a big exception that really not only uh, is immune from the virus, in fact, it's actually accelerated, is use, is technology, right? So we have never thought maybe. Uh, zoom is, is as powerful as food. So, I mean, I mean that's a, almost sounds silly as an analogy, but to a lot of the people that have to continue to make a living or almost all the white collar workers, that's really is highly dependent on at this point. But then everything else as well, because now people that were not doing online anything, whether it's grocery shopping to be ordering food, to do our bankings and every other type of services, everything now is now gone online. So we have never seen this kind of growth adoption and also the possibilities of things. So the first thing I think people would do, I think in the public um, marketplace is say, well, let's load all of our investment in the tech as witnessed by what had happened and transpired. And the companies that like even look at automotive, right? The, the tech driven automotive companies now worth more than all the other automotive company combined. So you never investors are never neutral, right? And investors are always like you swing one way or you swing the other way. So I think that has a lot of driving factor. In fact, in, in, when most people ask me, actually uh, on, on TVs, they, they said, Alfred, what do you think that you know like we had a very tr- tough a few trading days today is a big update. I said, actually, I'm kind of glad because this this actually went up very quickly. So now we feel like we have a relief, some pressure in the system. So today we had a big update. So I think that actually is good because you still have a lot of headroom. So we may have a few blips and a few problems along the way because people are way too ahead of themselves. And we have now invited so many people that invest in tech that they don't know nothing about, right? So that's an issue. So you talked about IPO. So honestly, I don't think any of the companies that are going public is new in the filing uh, procedures. They all have been waiting for a very long time. So we had obviously a very good 2019 and we're off to a terribly rough start in 2020, and it's been evolving ever since. So finally, the, there's such appetite to buy tech stock to a point where that's just not going to be enough, so we need some new ones. So this is an opportunity that we have not seen in a tech marketplace probably for 20 years. So this is actually very, very exciting. But but I want to remind um, everybody on one thing. The tech scene of the .dot-com error, which is the '99 and the 2000 scenario, would likely never return. And here's the reason: I took a company public in 1997. Back then, most of the hedge funds were fairly small, so they may have a few hundred million, or uh, well, maybe sometimes only a few hundred million, sometimes maybe a few million dollars in the management. Now that's no longer the case. When the bubble bursted in April 2000, the whole hedge fund industry got you know radically consolidated. So most of the hedge funds now are monstrous. The problem with a monster hedge fund is you, can't, you don't really have the resources to go mend that many small IPOs that you invest small amount in. So you have to place huge bets so that you can put resources on it to write reports, to keep an eye on it, right, and to watch it all the time. So that's changed the hurdle level of what you need to be able to go public. That means you have to be big enough, you know, you can, and your growth rate has to be fast enough to derive a very large market cap. Then you can raise a lot of money that is enough to be divided up into enough hedge fund for people to follow you around. Under that premise, um, I think IPOs is still going to be difficult, you know, until the company get very mature. Now remember, I, I ran a public company for a very long time, 14 years. It's a tough game, you know. Every three months you're reporting numbers, right? And we all understand the game. The game is, you know, you perform slightly better than what you guide the street, and then you better go guide up a little bit. And that never ends. You know, Once when you think you just do your earnings announcement, you're done, you're on to the next one. So the way that we've been running tech for now, this past 12 years, is not indicative to this behavior. We, we don't have this kind of discipline. Actually, we now have witnessed, you know, like some of these companies like Ubers and Lyft, which they're a terrific company, but hard to make money in transportation. So, but the game, when you're a public company, is all about making money, right? So And cash flow is the ultimate happiness for shareholders, right? Because that's really the game you're in. So now you're being placed in a growth game and immediately get placed now into a profit game and a cash flow generation game. That's a very different game. So I think it's great to see this level of excitement in the IPO marketplace. And I'm very happy for a lot of these founders that a lot of them I know well, that finally, you know, they have their chance. And there's no experience like a CEO that, that can compare to be running a public company because that's really, it's, a, it, it's you're in the top of the heap. So I, I, I think it's exciting, but um, it, it's not going to be, I don't think we're going to see another dot-com bubble coming back.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, And, and I was just going to add like how this manifests in more of the early stage side. So if you look at average valuation for seed stage companies, specifically in Silicon Valley pre-COVID, on average, it was about 12 million bucks, a little bit less than that. Post COVID, average valuation, seed stage company, San Francisco, primary, San Francisco barrier primarily, a little more than 10 million bucks. So overall, the average has dipped a little bit with sort of two caveats. One, I think now it really matters what market segment you're in. There's certain ones that are having, like if you're trying to do something in travel or luxury goods or some forms of entertainment, very, very, very tough time. If you're doing anything around SaaS, data, infrastructure type stuff, tends to be hotter things. Video, super hot. Um, so so you're seeing kind of a bifurcation depending on the market sectors that you're, that you're specifically targeting. Um, and then also tuple which is kind of an interesting observation on the seed state side, is typically now, so sort of pre-COVID, a lot of the seed companies, it was – Kind of an initial team with an idea and a concept. Like a lot of it was kind of much earlier on post COVID seed stage companies. You're actually typically seeing much more traction up until that point. You have to have much more kind of proof points around what you're doing. So most of the companies we typically see outside of the formation category typically have already working product, a few customers, some revenue, nothing crazy, but like they have something that they actually built, that they could show, that they could demo on Zoom, um, because now that we're all forced to be in this box, like you, you have to really show some progress. It, it's much harder if you just have a conceptual idea. Um, so we're seeing companies get to later stages of progress, even at the seed state side.
2: So, so Eric, we saw 187 companies. So I would say in the beginning of COVID, maybe the first couple of months, we did see a pretty um, steep price drop, maybe 30%, 30-ish percent kind of price drop for seed stage. And by and large, I think that has now returned to the 80% level of pre-COVID. I think that has a lot to do with the excitement of the public equity marketplace. But that's generally is the case. And tax has always been if we have a very healthy public equity market, it affects the psychology of the investors. The investors if they are endowments, they obviously were very scared would get very scared when the public equity market have a nosedive, then they generally would be much more conservative in where they invest even in the early venture fund if they're nervous about that, then the venture firm will be nervous about investing in their early-stage company. It kind of, uh, it rolls downhill. So I think that, by and large, I think has recovered. But I would say the most magical thing that we've seen with this crisis, the quality of the company has dramatically improved. So you see a lot of waste-of-time meetings. Now, obviously, Zoom also helps because if it's a waste-of-time meeting, we end it very shortly. When it's a face-to-face, you know, and you're in San Francisco, it's hard to push the person out the door, you know, you got kind of like you kind of have to be, be polite and have to spend an hour with them because they, they did all that work to try to present the thing to you. I feel bad for them. I've been there before myself. But now the quality of these companies and how prepared they are and the quality of the founders, when you see them, they're so succinct. And when you ask them questions, they really know their stuff. And that shows through. I know a lot of people argue whether you can invest in Zoom or not. through Zoom. I would say most definitely. I I think in many ways it's so much better, right? Because um, it, you you have more time to get yourself composed. You see more companies. You can meet with them, you know, in a again on a very short order. And we now meet with a company many more times than we invest than we would in person. So how could that be possibly be a bad thing? Another thing I think is crucial is now we basically have erased the geographical boundary. Before we would say. Silicon Valley, San Francisco, San Francisco plus 40 miles. Forget that. Now we have companies that we have met with first meeting, second meeting, third meeting. And the fourth meeting, I asked the guy, I said, where are you? He said, well, I moved back to Toronto. I said, why? He said, well, my three co-founders are from Toronto. It's 40% cheaper here. So for every dollar that we have raised, I have 40% more efficiency. Why wouldn't I? I said, until you ask, which I, can't have, I shouldn't really have this thing on my wall. Otherwise, you wouldn't even know if I just have a white wall, Alfred. I said, you're right, but that actually is great, right? So this is the thing that we have wanted for so long, which is bringing down the geographic, geographical boundary and people complain about a housing prices so high. It's coming down because of that too, right? So that's all good.
0: To- uh, totally. You uh, you mentioned you're, you're not concerned about sort of uh, bubble like, like we had in, in the dot-com era. W- what would change you, your, your mind on that? If, if what, what would have to happen such that you're like, oh man, I, I think this might be a major correction?
2: Yeah, well, I think the problem is that we have a lot of retail buyer of these stocks, which obviously generally, um, it's only happens when you have a we have a beginning of the bubble. So, um, and people are also trading very esoteric options on them so that that also further fuel the prices going irrationally. And we also have these auto trading products that sometimes it can curb it and it will just for sale. So all of that can cause big ups and big downs. So what we really have to do is the following. If you think long-term, right? So let's say, you, 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 know, you do a lot of study and you said, wow, enterprise SaaS application technology is going to be even more exciting. It has to be, right? In the next decade. And you say, well, these are the three, four winners that we, that first of all, the management team is great, always go back with the people. Their strategy is terrific, it's clearly articulated. And the expansion strategy is, is good. And most importantly, you want to invest in people that are flexible. So, especially a company that will show they have ability to twist, turn, move. I mean, look at there's some incredible companies, large tech companies like Adobe, like NVIDIA. Look what they have done in the past, you know, dozen years. They have twists and turns and they re-evolved at their size. They were as nimble and scrappy, like it's almost like a startup. Those are impressive companies. You know, I would look at, if you base your investment on that, you may have a blip or two along the way because the market is rising so quickly. But over the long period of time, when you look back, you say, well, you know what, that's just a hiccup in the process. Then you won't get hurt. So I would say private equity is not a thing that you want to trade short term because it's a, those, those, we should leave that to professionals. But for investors, you look down that trail. I mean, like it's almost like these days, investing into public equity, you have to think like you're investing in a private company. There's almost no difference other than one that you have immediate liquidity. Well, the other ones, there's also the secondary market. that are pretty liquidable. But the most important thing is look long-term, look at the winners, then I think you don't have that fear. But if you are trying to bet on short-term big wins, that's scary stuff, right? And then you can get hurt.
0: Totally. In, in terms of the experience of actually running a public company, do you, do you expect that to change over time? Like, Do you think SPACs or other methods of going public will, will sort of become more mainstream or are they sort of fads? And then in terms of you know, there are companies like Long Term Stock Exchange, they're trying to uh, change some of the reporting structure that you mentioned is, is a real grind. How, what, what's your sort of take on, on how that might be different going forward?
2: So I'm going to look at it from um, the people that build a company, people have to work in those companies angle. So there's a reason our stock option invests in four years because that just typically is one cycle of we get our technology to, to a mature level that we can now see light that now it can scale. So sometimes some companies need two times four years, right? Now actually think, think about what had happened since 2008. We now have three times four years involved before the company could go public. So the employees that have gotten the biggest benefit, including the management team, Right. They have spent a lot of time to mature what they're doing. So this is extremely, extremely crucial when you are looking at a public company to think long term. Which is the reason why I'm not personally not the biggest believer of the spec product because they are trying to increase liquidity for things that in a very short period of time and company really don't operate that way. Right. So if you look back and if I have to operate a BEA like that, BEA will never be a successful company that will generate $1.7 in revenue, has 100,000 customers. Every single one in Fortune 2 or 3,000 is on on our customer list. It's because we spend enough time, we evolve our technology, we're relentless in terms of uh, making sure that we provide a lot of value to the customers they can gain in their business. So the people that run those businesses must think long-term because you really don't have a choice. So other financial instruments in the short term try to disrupt it you really have to think about whether you want to use those vehicles or not because tech in principle don't work this way. Reinvention is a tough business and we typically will have to try many different things before we succeed and pivot and turn left and turn right many, many times. And the ones that get big and they can immediately make a 90 degree turn may suffer short term uh, problems with the equity market, but then they gain big time. Those are honestly are the company that I love, right? Those are the company that ultimately would become really, really big, right? because they have to go, go through a lot of different things in, in the lifespan. So I think that's really crucial to think about.
0: Any other spaces that you've made uh, bets in that we haven't yet covered that might be uh, interesting to go into?
2: Yeah, because we're in the formation state, it's almost like it's by default we are looking for the most disruptive thing in enterprise, enterprise software, which is not an easy thing to do, because most of the enterprise software company, uh, so, so this is one fundamental difference between enterprise and consumer technology. You know, in the enterprise, they don't throw anything away. Nothing, right? This is IBM running IMS that was invented in the 60s, still running. Large bands still have them. These monster robotic tape drives that were built by storage tech, they are still around, right? We don't throw anything away. So to be able to reinvent enterprise, that means you're lugging all that stuff along, right? Compatibility and backup compatibility is hugely critical. So when we see a disruptive tech, which I think there are plenty of them to be had, I can tell you one area that we're particularly excited about, which is, you know, I originally didn't come from the open source world. So I came from the open standard world. We have Xopen, we have the Unix standards. So we were driving along basically using standard as a way that we have compatibility among vendors, right? So we agree a point in advance, along with key customers to say, okay, to run a distributed transactions This is the calling convention. Everybody must support those APIs. But the world changed right? Very, pretty abruptly when we had the last financial crisis that we rapidly adopted open source, which is wonderful. Because now anybody write any code, the first thing you do, you go to GitHub and you start searching for the library set and you adopt stuff. Now, the only problem that we have is whenever we solve the problem like support, how do we support those code that when the contributors really are not financially incentivized to support them? But if I'm a bank and deep in the bow of my technology, there's a set of code that really is so crucial for us. And we're going to be seeing like magical stuff that need to support like machine learning algorithm that everyone is out. The first thing when you say machine learning, we go look at a library, okay? And we pick something out, right? And most of the people don't want to fork them because once you fork them, you become impact compatible. So the whole quest about how do we make this economics of open source work is going to be very critical. We must resolve it now. I think that's one area where we are very, very optimistic that we know there's going to be systemic change in the open source world that's going to be super exciting. We're going to make it economically viable and working. So those people that have done magical thing is going to be rewarded accordingly, right? It won't be like what the people that invented Linux, they really didn't get very much out of the, of the, the financial reward. That should not be the way anymore. So when you have to align with invention, the invention is going to accelerate. So we think that's going to be super crucial for us to go resolve. And that's one field that this is stuff that where I, I've been there, I, I, I was in the trenches. We love to look at those kind of ideas. We want to work with the founders to evolve those ideas to make it viable. So to us, that's, that's an exciting field. Very exciting.
0: Totally. Talk a little bit about the difference that investing in enterprise companies in 2020 versus, you know, Five, eight years ago, you know, when you were doing a lot of your, your angel investing, how have you sort of seen it evolve?
2: Oh my God. Now, uh, to start an enterprise software company, actually to start any technology company, especially an enterprise software company, it's so much easier. First, you've got cloud, right? And, uh, and that is only at in an infancy because right now we're still by and large dominated by Amazon, right? So because that's kind of the big, um, single player that have dominated where you're going to be deploying your stuff and then prices were cheap enough. But now we have disruptors. We have Microsoft that came onto the scene very strongly, and they were offering all kinds of stuff to encourage people to put basically running cold there. Google, you know, clearly has determined that's a must-win field. And with only the three of them, we're going to see like other companies that, like Oracle and other places, we're going to have to jump into the game, otherwise they get disrupted. So we have no choice. So that's really exciting. That means the barrier to entry for starting a company is going to continue to be dropping. So when I started a, um, a software company that my software has to university runs on all platform, first, I need a massive room, all race floor. I could buy every type of computer, some multiple of them to run different variations of operating system and databases and system software, different routers, everything physical constraint, UPS, air conditioning, the whole nine yards. I don't know. I don't have to do nothing. I push a button it's all available for me and then the software to automate that process. It's even more impressive. All the DevOps stuffs are all going to be fully automated. You push a button, it's deployed. That's really exciting. That's very, very different. That changed the economics of what it takes to start a company. So the capital to start a company now is really little. That, to me, it's a great way and a great sign where technological innovation is really on the uptick. So to me, that's very, very different from it was uh, you know, 8, 10 years ago. Now is like you assume when somebody don't run on the cloud, you look at them and say, "Are you okay? What are you trying to do?" I mean, we look at them strange. It's almost we default to that, and that just happened so quickly. One generation of technology, the whole game changed.
1: Yeah, and, and the only thing I'd add to that is, I, I guess I personally was not investing in enterprise companies in the the last two thousand eight, so I have less specific comments on that. But but probably one big difference from then until now. It's sort of twofold. One, you see a huge expansion in the customer set on what actually constitutes an enterprise software company. Because I think when most people have in their head enterprise software, Fortune 100 companies, large deployments, all internal sort of stuff. Um, But that's not really the case anymore. With the rise of open source, A, you have a large distributed uh, open developer segment that you can sell to. Um, That is both tied, but not necessarily tied within large existing enterprise companies. And then secondly, you're seeing a kind of large proliferation of SMB, mid-market, even tech companies as initial customer sets for many of the enterprise companies. There's always the question on if you build just for the long tail customer, do you cross over and when and all that? But entrepreneurs now have a lot more choices and leeway and they are not stuck into just a single deployment model. Um, so I'd say that's probably one of the biggest changes is just a huge opening of what constitutes an actual enterprise or B2B customer segment.
2: So, Ari, so, so I want to give you actually a live example. So there's a, a very small sushi bar um, in San Francisco that I love. It's run by husband and wife. And um, actually this week, the wife is actually making curry. And I asked her, so well, why are you making curry? You, uh, you guys are a sushi bar. She said, oh, no, no, no. After, uh, after doing some study off of Square's um, analytics, and also I'm using Google Analytics as well. And this is a Japanese woman that hardly speaks English, know nothing about technology. We have discovered our customer actually want to cook food. I almost dropped onto the floor. I said, well, what did you just say? I said, yeah, this is what I did. You want me to show you? And she would be able to share a screen on Zoom and, sh- and show me. So I said, enterprise technology really has changed my goodness right so you can imagine right that scale of it that's b2b the scale of that when the business scale up the level of technology they'd be using so i think what we think of a technology user in an enterprise which generally is now data scientists data analysts it's going to be the barrier is going to be slower to a point that somebody on the shop floor would be able to use so i think we're going to see drastic adoption of enterprise technology because of what had happened through this crisis going into the next decade. I think 10 years from now, we'll be doing dynamics, and analytics, and be able to instruments and learn and using machine learning to refocus. I, I Actually, the only thing I asked, her, I said, well, why, th- why don't you have machine learning uh, technology they put in so that you can actually chase the customer, what they like, and then now cater custom meal for them that you just basically spit out uh, a menu, just cook it and just give it to them. And she said, oh, wow, wow let, let me go do some research. And, and, like, it doesn't face people anymore. That's just totally amazing. When I first started in this kind of middleware field, it's such esoteric stuff. Now, a owner, husband, and wife in a sushi bar is using that. It's totally astonishing.
0: Totally. A question to, to end on. Let's go deeper on, on remote. You know, some people say that when, when COVID is over, people still be distributed, but you're gonna to need to be in the same place as a CEO if you really want to rise within a, within a company and thus you still need to be in San Francisco or wherever the CEO is. What's your take? Will most companies sort of remain, you know, mostly or fully distributed or how do you sort of see this playing out?
2: I think in tech, uh, do you expect a lot of the companies that I talked to a lot of the CEOs. You look at some great companies that I love like Databricks, for example. Talk to Ali, Ali will tell you he is totally dedicated and committed to moving the distributor, right? A decentralized company. And I think a lot of the people already doing it, they have decentralized offices, but they may not have these fully decentralized policies and culture for the company yet. I think this is now being implemented faster than we can imagine. Now, I happen to be one of those people that believe there are reasons that, because we're human beings, we do need to be able to see each other, be able to look somebody in the eye, and be able to socialize and converse with them face-to-face. When you look somebody face-to-face in the eye, it's much harder for them to uh, lie to you. It's just how human works. So will we ever return to the office? I think absolutely. Now, will we return to the office just like the way we were? For Obviously, for no apparent reason, for productivity, we're just working in a noisy place. Why would we do that? But so at home could be annoying all day also. We may want to really be able to interact with other people. So I think we're going to develop a whole new model or what returning back to the office is going to be like. But the way that we – the place that we came from, we're not going to go back to them. I know what, you know, everyone is saying. Some of those people are saying, well, you know, Reed Hastings is saying – no, I just, I hate it. As soon as we have the vaccine, we're going to go back. I understand, right? For a creativity business, nothing beats you have a bunch of people in the room, but do we need the whole company to be all in the same place, right? Or be inside a building? Maybe not. So I, I, I'm pretty bullish that I think the way we're going to operate will be very, very different. So do you expect the real estate industry probably will have to do a lot of readjustments?
1: Yeah. My only comment to that is, I think sort of pre-pandemic or right kind of in the beginning of it, I think offices were viewed as this binary choice, either in the office or at home. There was no in-between. I think now as the longer as this has gone on and the more comfortable people have got with this and the more tools have helped make this easier, I think it won't be such a binary choice anymore. I think it'll be a more gray area. Maybe we use the offices for important meetings, customer stuff, one-on-ones, but then a lot of our focus work we do at home. Or maybe the office isn't one central location anymore. Maybe it's a decentralized where there's smaller hubs and spokes in different places. I think you're going to see a lot more reformatting of this. And I think this is actually going to be one of the longer systemic trends that we see come from this, that when we look back, we'll, we'll, we'll look back at our original office space and we'll say, Either that was so quaint or, you know, I can't believe we all worked at the office because I don't think we're going to work that way anymore.
2: So, so Eric, I want to come back to your question about is it important to be close to the CEO that question? So I say that really is a culture question. So if the culture of the company is very much in office space and the culture of the office, you have to locate where you sit very close to the CEO, then that won't change. However, if the CEO is committed to now to have a really decentralized workforce. And that is a commitment you either have, you're gonna go all the way or you do none of it. If you don't go all the way, it won't work. Now, the reason why this is working and this become normal, right? So when we jump into a Zoom call and have the Zoom cast, and this is like everyday's business, for sure it's for you, Eric, it's because everybody does it, right? Nobody is expected to be inside one of us to be in a room with you. If that's the case, that's going to be a differentiation, right? So if I'm in the room with you all the time and Chris is not, obviously we're going to have much stronger chemistry than we would the other way. But if if all of us are the same, where we all go distributed and we all get decentralized, then I think it's level of the playing field. But then you have the opportunity, right, to hire the people that you want normally. You won't be able to get them because they're geographically constrained. So I think it that, that's going to be a lot of upside. First of all, like the whole uh, subject of suburb is coming right back just because people now, so many people are now moving out of the city because they said, well, I need to be in a bigger space. I want more room. I want a better environment for my kids. I want a safer place for my kids to go to school. So now they can have that and again, still go to work. So some of that, I think we, we probably won't go back to the way we were.
0: Yeah. Awesome. I, uh, I think that's a great place to, to wrap my um, guests today have been Chris McCann and Alfred Schwang of, of, of Race Capital. Uh, if you want to learn more, uh, you can check them out at race.capital. Uh, entrepreneurs, uh, definitely recommend uh, w- working with them. Uh, I'm excited to, to do more with them personally. Chris, Alfred, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Eric. Thank it was a pleasure.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.